0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's get started. Today's program is going to cover exercise and appetite, and what time of day gets the what results from what exercise, and best practices for exercise, also new medical devices, and things we thought we knew which just aren't true. So all of that today on Ask Dr. Don. So let's go ahead and get started. Researchers at Baylor College of Medicine, Stanford School of Medicine, collaborating institutions reported today in the Journal nature that they have identified a molecule in the blood that is produced during exercise and can effectively reduce food intake and obesity in mice. These findings also probably apply to mammals, and they improve our understanding of the physiological processes that underlie the interplay between exercise and hunger. Regular exercise has been proven to help weight loss also to regulate appetite and, obviously, improve the metabolic profile, reducing risks of diabetes and hypertension, especially for people who are overweight and obese. But understanding the mechanism by which exercise triggers these benefits, we can get closer to helping people improve their health, possibly even one day benefiting using an analogous medicine, a uh, people who can't exercise because of frailty or age, maybe they also can benefit from a sort of synthetic exercise, and definitely this looks like it has possibilities. Dr. Yong Zhu and Dr. Jonathan Long and their colleagues conducted a comprehensive analysis of blood plasma compounds from mice following intense treadmill running. The most significantly induced molecule was a modified amino acid called lac-Phi. It's synthesized from lactate, which is a byproduct of strenuous exercise that's responsible for that lovely burning sensation in your muscles. Feel the burn. You're feeling the lactate. And also phenylalanine, an amino acid that's one of the main building blocks of protein and present in the bloodstream and the muscles. They used mice that were fed a a diet that is called an inducing, an obesity inducing diet, basically a high fat diet. And what they found was that if they gave a high dose of lac phenylalanine, they could reduce food intake in these mice uh, by 50% compared to control mice. And during this time, it didn't. Change their movement or their energy expenditure. They weren't hyped up like they were on cocaine or something. And when they gave this to the same mice over 10 days, they got a reduction in cumulative food intake and body weight, loss of body fat, not muscle, very important, because they got impl- improved glucose tolerance. And losing muscle is what makes you a skinny fat person. And a skinny fat person is. Fat and bone, not muscle, not uh, skin and bone, and so the absence of muscle really causes insulin resistance. The researchers in the process of doing this also identified an enzyme called CNDP2 that's involved in the production of lac fee or lac phenylalanine, and they showed that mice lacking this enzyme didn't lose as much weight on an exercise regimen as a control group on the same exercise plan, probably because they didn't get the appetite reduction because they couldn't make this compound. I read this and I began wondering about that certain percentage of my patients who just tell me it doesn't matter how much I exercise and I'm following my diet and it doesn't matter how much I exercise I just can't lose weight, it doesn't change me and I'm wondering if maybe there are people walking around who lack this enzyme or some analog to it and simply don't get the appetite reduction that we're seeing in these mice. Now lest you ask, well it's true for mice but is it true for men and women? The researchers also went looking for lac phenylalanine in the blood following physical activity in both race horses and humans. And data from an, a human exercise cohort showed that sprint exercise induced the most dramatic increase in plasma lac That makes sense because when you sprint, you can't supply enough blood to the muscles. And so they have to, uh, they, you can't get enough oxygen, I should say, uh, to the muscles. So, you end up going into anaerobic metabolism, which generates the lactose or the lactic acid, rather. So they looked at what was the best exercise. It was sprint exercise. It followed next by resistance training and then by endurance training. So this suggests that this has been highly conserved throughout the mammalian line and associated with many animal species. And it's really a short step, given this compound's very, very simple configuration. It's very, very much a short step to starting to use this in humans to see whether or not we can get a weight loss benefit without a weight, without a drug penalty. And boy, would that be interesting. Our second story about exercise involves Timing of exercise. I came across this in a little science blurb, but I'm going to go into a little bit of detail. However, I'll read you where it discusses the program. These were all healthy men and women, uh, important, as many, a few more women than there were men between the ages of 20 and 25. They were already well trained. They were already. In good physical shape. They were put on a 12-week diet and fitness program. More specifics later. But half the participants exercised for an hour before 8.30 a.m. and the other half between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. at night. They had the same meal plan and everybody improved overall in fitness and general health. But for women working out in the morning reduced abdominal belly fat more and also reduced blood pressure more. But working out in the evening increased upper body strength, muscle power, and endurance. Here's where it gets interesting. Most research in exercise physiology is done in men. If you go back and do a review of the literature, less than 3% of the published studies actually use females. So are we barking up the wrong tree? Well, in terms of the advice we're giving, probably. So the results for men and women were, were very different. I mentioned that women working out in the morning had a uh, reduced blood pressure. Well, men who exercised in the evening saw their greatest reductions in blood pressure. Also, the risk of heart disease and fatigue, according to the um, uh, male morning group, And they burned more fat by exercising in the evenings. So I want to talk a little bit deeply about the experimental design and particularly the uh, program that they were doing. But there's also just a discussion in this that I found fascinating. What we do know about the differences between men and women, and there is some research there, shows that Sex influences both acute and chronic training adaptations, capillary density in the muscles and skin, hunger responses, and fat metabolism. So really, men and women are very different in terms of their exercise physiology and their response. I want to point out the dose of protein that these well-fit people who were on this pretty intense program, uh, that they were taking they were taking one point one to two point two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, so the average seventy kilogram man that would be seventy grams of protein that 's actually quite a bit, and as we get older and our appetites start to decline, and remember the older of these uh, cohort were fifty five years old, but I think we can extrapolate that out to the fifty five to seventy five year that increased protein turns out to be very important in supporting the system. Now, they used an exercise program. What is the best exercise? Well, the, the answer is pretty much a multimodal approach. And what they started out was was with was a acronym called RISE, which stood for resistance functional exercise, weightlifting or rubber bands, the R, interval sprint exercise, the uh, the idea of uh, intense interval training, stretching, that's the S, yoga, pilates, tai chi, other forms of stretching, and endurance, which would be long distance running, the so-called cardio uh, that we're, we often talk about uh, for an abbreviation. As I said, this was a relatively small cohort, and they ended up with 30 women and 24 men. They then matched them for body weight, body mass index, and percentage body fat, and randomly assigned them to one of two groups. The same RISE program performed in the morning or at night. And the differences, as I've already alluded to, were quite significant but I haven't given you the volume of this. So in the women, those who exercised in the morning had uh, greater reductions in their total body weight uh, and especially abdominal fat. So 10%, a a decrease of 10% if you exercised in the morning and were female versus 3% if you exercised at night. That's quite a substantial difference. Also blood pressure, 10% if you exercised in the morning and 3% uh, if you exercised in the night, and increased lower body muscle power, 13% versus 4% with the evening group. So really quite substantial. However, the evening group did much better in the upper body muscle strength, 16% versus 9%. Their power, in other words, the amount of uh, increase they could put in the weights that they were lifting, a, a, a drastic Improvement of thirty-seven percent versus eight percent, and endurance forty percent versus twenty-five percent. They also, in the evening group, had a tendency to experience improved mood and greater satiety. I've already mentioned the uh, difference in the men, but the fact that the the um, men's blood pressure went from twelve went uh, had a twelve percent decrease in the evening group whereas the women's blood pressure had a three percent decrease in the evening group is just fuel to the idea that we're talking about two very very different kinds of physiology not just at the level of muscle mass and skeletal strength but also you know some deep variation in the physiology that uh, i find you know just rather fascinating for example Uh, The resting metabolic rate in uh, AM exercising women uh, changed a great deal, uh, but it didn't change a great deal in the evening group. So fascinating stuff and, of course, more data that is news you can use. I personally am going to take my resistance work and my weightlifting program, which I do probably probably. For, as it happens in the evenings, usually at the end of a work day and uh, keep doing that in the evenings. but I'm going to try to get myself up a little bit earlier to do my runs because and I'm sure that was an extreme, so it's going to be a continuum. but if I can get my runs in the morning, I think I'm probably going to get more benefit. Postmenopausal female, belly fat's always an issue, no matter how hard you try. So I have a news flash from the near future. Imagine you've just had a big surgery. While you were under anesthesia in the surgery suite, at the end of the procedure, the surgeon wrapped a small structure, something like a short, hollow paper soda straw, around the main nerve that serves the sensors for pain in the area of the surgery. In the recovery room, the uh, the effects of your anesthetics are still going and you don't need any pain meds but the next morning they ask you if you need any pain medications but no you check in on yourself and you have no pain at all the area just feel the area uh, above or around the surgery just feels a little bit numb how can this be well a Northwestern University team led uh, of researchers has developed a small, soft, flexible implant that relieves pain on demand and without the use of drugs. This first-of-its-kind device could be a much-needed alternative to opioids and other highly addictive medications. Particularly in my patients who are recovering addicts, they are terrified of having surgery because they're worried they'll lose their... Um, their sobriety. It's, you know, taught to them and becomes a truth that any future exposure is just going to start them on the loop again. And certainly there's plenty of anecdotal information uh, to that effect, although there's also certain scientific uh, information that maybe refutes that idea. But once something's in your head, it becomes real and it's very much in everyone's head. So, This biocompatible water-soluble device, and this is important, it's wrapped around the nerves and then you can close over it. How does it work? (laughs) It's a cooler. It's a refrigerator. So it cools down the nerves, which uh, causes the nerves to stop sending signals to the brain. There's an external pump and that enables the user to remotely activate the device and dial it up or dial it down. Once the device is no longer needed, it absorbs into the body, it doesn't need to be taken out surgically, it dissolves. And it has the potential to be very valuable for people undergoing routine surgeries. But even people, for example, who get an amputation, they often require high levels of post-operative medications. And we think that the pain that they experience from the amputation retrains their brain to give them that phantom limb pain. So if you we have data that shows if you get really good analgesia early on, that there's less phantom limb pain. But that's a problem, obviously, if uh, you mess up or if you simply can't get adequate anesthesia with drugs. So the researchers here spent a lot of time working on uh, creating this new material. It has a very science fiction sound. Uh, It's evaporative cooling. We know how sweat cools the body. Well, this contains a liquid coolant that's induced to evaporate at a specific location on, on that sensory nerve. It slows down the brain impulses and you can target the area where you're modulating the pain signals and not modulate the brain. So this is a way of Giving analgesia without interfering with brain function, which of course could be very, very helpful even in chronic pain situations. Although one wonders how that could work, but this is primarily, I think, going to be until for quite some time a post operative anesthetic for that reason. Also, you have to be careful not to overcool, so it has you can damage the nerve and the fragile tissues. But if the device is adjusted automatically, that it, it, then you can do this and not damage tissue. Cryotherapies are, you are around, they've been around for a long time, basically injecting cooling agents with a needle, but these have lacked precision and can create rebound inflammation. This thing is tiny. It's just five millimeters wide, and it's curled into a little cuff that loops around the nerve. It doesn't need to be sutured in, and it, uh, over time, is simply reabsorbed. They're all biocompatible materials, and over days or weeks, they reabsorb into the body, just like absorbable stitches. And because it's so thin and so soft, you can put it in areas where there's a lot of motion and movement, and it doesn't interfere with the ability to bend, twist, or anything else, so this is a uh, really interesting, I would say, almost a breakthrough. It's certainly extremely promising technology, and I'm excited and will be happy to bring you more information. But while we're talking about pain, let's talk about opioids and some of their side effects, one of the most Universal side effects for opioids are gastrointestinal, nausea, vomiting, constipation, particularly the latter. And why they cause these symptoms has not been well understood, but a new study has really analyzed how opioids like morphine actually give these effects by causing gastric inflammation. Morphine is still considered one of the best pain management drugs available and its derivatives like hydrocodone and oxycodone. And researchers have been working both to find other drugs, but also trying to make these drugs more livable. Opiate users compared with non-users have a high incidence of gastric dysfunction, greater levels of gastric retention worse quality of life, increased hospitalizations, and, of course, increased uses of anti-nausea and, in fact, pain meds. So to investigate this, the researchers used mice. They treated mice with morphine or a placebo, and they found that morphine-mediated gastric damage occurred as a uh, consequence of the accumulation of acid in the stomach due to two factors, both increased acid secretion and delayed gastric emptying. So increasing the acid and then giving it a longer time in the stomach caused dramatic damage to the gastric mucosa cells. It caused uh, increased gastric cell death. It reduced the mucus production. So without that mucus production, it becomes a, a feedback loop. You lose protection. You get more damage. You lose more protection. You get the idea. A race to the bottom. The researchers then experimented with using naloxone, a synthetic drug that blocks the opioid receptor function, and they found that it reduced these effects when given orally to the mice. It's a local effect; it didn't get into the bloodstream, but uh, it it worked where it was, which is where it needed to be. The it turns out opioid receptors are found in very high concentration in the antrum of the stomach, which is where the acid-producing cells exist. Now they were looking for how is this regulated and they hypothesized that it was cytokine IL6, a pro-inflammatory cytokine, one where if you've been reading below the very super uh, the very surface level of uh, the COVID-19 analysis of the pathology of this disease, you'll have heard of IL6 and it goes up when you have inflammation in this is in the bloodstream. But what they found was that these mice had elevated levels of IL-6. They then, I mentioned the, before the mice that didn't have that enzyme for uh, making the the LAC-V. Well, you can build a mouse that lacks any gene you want. You literally call up. The mice building people and the CRISPR people, and they just CRISPR that out. They take it out, cut it out, pop, it's gone. And if that isn't lethal to the mice, then you get your package of mice in, I don't know, 12 weeks that, um, are all genetically identical, but lack the ability to make IL-6. So then when they did the same experiment with the IL-6 null mice, they didn't see any delays in gastric emptying. They didn't get any inflammation. And the pH levels didn't change. So this proved that the mediator of IL-6 is what causes the delay in gastric emptying. A thing causing a thing which causes a thing, typical of how the body functions, because each time you have uh, one of those little causes, you can also have plus and minus factors making it cause it more or making it cause it less, which allows for fine... Fine tuning and modulation of any physiological response. It's all about the gray areas, guys. But one of the things they found was that they could protect the stomach by giving the proton pump inhibitor omeprazole, the little purple pill. Now, regular listeners will know I'm not a big fan of proton pump inhibitors for a number of reasons, but In a situation like this where you've got something increasing gastric acid secretion, if you give enough of it, you're just balancing an over-release. You're not completely destroying the tonic normal release that you need for digestion and, I might add, for gastric emptying. So if you give too much of meprizol, you're going to delay gastric emptying. If you give the right amount, you be- you counterbalance that delay caused by the morphine and protect the GI uh, system and improve the morphine tolerance. So they started uh, looking at, well, what happens with morphine-induced analgesic tolerance? Does, do we have an effect? Does this omeprazole have an effect on on that? And surprisingly, at least to me, it does. Morphine uh, apparently activates pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-6, but it is that activation that also drives morphine tolerance. And by breaking the cycle of the inflammatory cytokines, the omeprazole somehow manages to prevent morphine tolerance from emerging in these experimental animals, meaning that they can stay at a lower dose of opiate for longer and not require higher and higher doses for an effect. So that's really interesting. And I think uh, maybe I have been tarring PPIs with with too much of a black brush, and I need to start thinking about how they might be useful in mitigating these adverse side effects. Now, this is just a mouse study, and this is, of course, an over-the-counter agent, but, you know it might be something to consider. No data in humans yet. I need to emphasize that. But also, these are agents that are FDA cleared and it have no adverse interactions that have been identified. So seems like it might be a good idea. Now we're moving into the things we thought were true that aren't uh, section. This, uh, Looking at arthroscopic surgery for traumatic meniscal tears in young adults. Anyone who ever watches sports knows that the footballer, whether that's American or European football, falls and is carried off the, the, tr- the uh, turf, grabbing his or her knee. Probably they're looking at an orthopedic surgery. But maybe that's a mistake. Uh, randomized trials previously looking at partial me- um, medial meniscectomy, which is where they remove part of the meniscus, uh, have involved mainly older patients or middle aged ones with degenerative tears. And in those people where the meniscus is already broken down, studies have, have not proven to be beneficial uh, to do the surgery at all. No. Difference at one year. But what about younger people whose injuries are more traumatic? Researchers in Denmark conducted a trial in 121 younger patients from 18 to 40, mean the average age was 30, most of whom had tears that were associated with an identifiable trauma, and uh, duration varied considerably. Some had had symptoms for over two years. They didn't take patients with What's called a bucket handle tear or a complete rupture of a ligament. They were excluded from this study. So they were randomized to uh, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy or uh, a 12 week individualized exercise therapy program uh, consisting of two sessions a week. And then they followed them for a year. So after 12 months of follow up, those uh, 26% of those uh, who had been in the uh, exercise group went over to surgery. 13% of those who were randomized to surgery decided not to do it. This is what's called an intent-to-treat analysis. And so basically the surgical and the exercise therapy groups improved by 19 points in the surgery group and 16 points in the exercise group on a 100 point scale this is not a statistically significant difference so most younger people with uncomplicated meniscal tears will do just as well with exercise as with surgery and if you don't improve with the non-invasive approach you can always have surgery later you can't unhave surgery so i found that rather interesting our next thing we have thought was true, that turns out not to be true, is a little more universal, and that's levothyroxine. There's so many people in the country who are taking thyroid medication that you probably know somebody, who, anyone who's listening to this. So millions of Americans take either generic or brand-named levothyroxine. And the American Thyroid Association has uh, recommended for many years against switching between levothyroxine preparations from different manufacturers. And the FDA's position has been, yeah, generic, it's all the same. Don't worry about it. So researchers looked at a national administrative claims database, and they compared the TSH-stimulating hormone levels found in patients who continued to take the same generic levothyroxine and those who switched. They had about 16,000 adults with an average age of fifty nine. Who filled prescriptions uh, between 2008 and 2019 on a stable dose of thyroid, with a state with a normal TSH level? Basically, there was no difference in TSH levels between the switchers and the non-switchers, and the proportion who had abnormal TSH levels, either less than 0.1 or more than greater than 10, was the same for both groups. And the TSH levels on the average were the same for the switchers and the non-switchers. So, yeah, we can kind of ignore the advice of the American Thyroid Association. This is meaningful to me because I do worry when I am forced by insurance companies to switch someone's dose, whether whether I'm doing them a disservice and, or whether I should appeal it, which is, as you might imagine, a rather time-consuming and cumbersome prospect. So good to know that I can stop worrying about that. Also good to know if you're an older adult is uh, this latest study, which shows that vitamin D supplementation given daily can reduce the incidence of new autoimmune disease. This was a study that looked at both omega-3 fatty acid supplementation and vitamin D. It was called the VITAL study, and it enrolled 25,000 adults older than 50. So it, it's a well-powered study. If there is a benefit, it's going to find it. So they took about 2,000 units of vitamin D a day uh, or one gram of omega-3 or both or neither for five years. So you had four lines there. And that kind of study is going to allow you to tell whether the vitamin D and the omegas actually provide additional benefit uh, whether it's additive, multiplicative, etc., so fewer patients taking vitamin D than those on placebo developed uh, autoimmune disease—a statistically significant difference, basically reducing the hazard ratio by about 25%. So, if the odds of developing autoimmune are one, the group taking the vitamin D had had odds of 0.75, and. This was a long trial. The That level kept going down. In the last three years of the trial, the odds ratio went down to 0.61, so a 40% reduction, which is quite statistically significant. However, they did not see a difference with the people taking omega-3s alone. However, the people who were taking both had, as you might expect, a similarly lower incidence of autoimmune disease, maybe a little bit better overall than the group just taking the vitamin D, but not a statistically significant difference between those two. Now, this is an open-label trial. People did know what they were taking. But, you know, when we're talking about developing an autoimmune disease, I am so not worried about placebo effect there. I mean, yeah, yeah. Plus, there are all sorts of other benefits to taking vitamin D. It's a strong anti-inflammatory. It has some anti-cancer effects. It's actually an anti-obesity agent to a small degree. There's a lot of reasons to want to be having a good level of vitamin D. And what's a good level? Well, considerably more than the level of 30 that you usually see recommended when you get your lab thing back. Greater than 30, you're good. Actually, older adults should probably shoot for a level of 50. And people with a family history of autoimmune disease, I recommend that they uh, shoot for a level of about 70. There's no evidence of any harm with levels up to 100. There may be some downregulation of vitamin D receptors when you take either a higher dose than that every day, well, a dose that gets you above that 100 mark every day, Or when you take burst vitamin D, and this is because vitamin D really is technically a hormone, when you take something in one big burst, like a shot of testosterone once a week, the levels get so high initially that now things shrink, like uh, because you turn off the stimulation to body tissues that are otherwise receiving a low-grade tonic stimulation. It's a really big deal and something that we need to be aware of. A study just coming out on Alzheimer's disease and follicle-stimulating hormone has really got me thinking about menopause. If you talk to a woman who's had a radical hysterectomy where their ovaries were removed, you'll often hear, Tales of really substantial hot flashes and sleep issues, but also brain fog, problems, word finding. And most women have a period of a year or two when they go from being our usual talkative, hyper articulate selves to struggling to find words. And it can be quite alarming and disconcerting because it is so sudden. This study looked at mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, that is to say, mice who have been genetically engineered to have a higher probability of accumulating amyloid beta in their brains and also developing an Alzheimer's-like syndrome. And they measure that through various behavioral tests, but obviously it's not a highly quantitative thing. That being said, what they found was that Women who have high levels of follicle-stimulating hormone, I think this is probably why they got started doing the study, have a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. Follicle-stimulating hormone comes from the pituitary gland, and it's supposed to stimulate the ovaries to make estrogen. And when the estrogen levels drop, the pituitary sensing that sends out higher and higher levels. It's similar to what happens in a low thyroid The gland can't produce thyroid, so the pituitary sends out higher and higher levels of TSH. And we use that TSH in therapy to tell us when we've hit the sweet spot with our drug dosing. When we've got it between a certain range, then we know that the pituitary is happy, which means we're giving the correct dose. In the case of FSH, sometimes the pituitary stops releasing it, and sometimes it keeps pumping it out for years. What they found in their mouse models was when they took out the ovaries in the mice, of course, this causes a really abrupt rise in the FSH, they saw a rapid increase in both amyloid beta and tau being deposited in the brains. They decided, okay, that's interesting. And the next cohort of mice, they took the ovaries out in the same way, but they administered a monoclonal antibody that blocked the action of FSH. And they found that giving the antibody reduced both the deposition of beta amyloid and tau in the brains of the mice, and they did not see the cognitive decline that they'd seen in that first group. Blocking FSH appears to block an enzyme that causes the accumulation of both beta amyloid and tau. In these mice, they use knockout uh, genetic engineering to knock out The receptors for FSH. And they didn't see the increased levels because they weren't kicking it up with the FSH. So they weren't seeing uh, the effect of high levels of FSH. Now, they did use this in male mice. Males do produce a low level of FSH, far below what's produced in women, however. And they did see in the male mice that they got decreased cortical deposition of amyloid. So low estrogen levels and high luteinizing hormone levels would be associated in this word finding in this Alzheimer's thing. One thinks about possibly trying FSH blockade in women as they go through menopause if they have a high risk of Alzheimer's disease by family history. I think that would be a a really interesting thing to do. The other thing that you might want to do is think about simply preventing the release of FSH. But I think the antibody binding technique is something we can weaponize sooner and bring to the fore. It would be interesting to treat women with a dementia and see what we were getting that way. And I just want to say that I am so grateful to all of those little mice for all of their sacrifices so I see a couple of calls coming in. It looks like we're going to go with John in Santa Cruz. Hello, John, you're on the air.
1: Oh, hello. And I was going to say I liked your uh, little talk on the uh, injuries for the knee injuries. It's kind of uh, very enlightening.
0: I think we're too quick to the knife.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, we just want to chop up everything. You no, know, I had a question uh I, I've got these uh, hair colorings done, and this last one really aggravated my skin, uh, and I think it didn't get washed off completely, and then I ended up scratching it, and it's been really bugging me last Friday, mm. <laughs> and I uh, I put like uh, aloe vera on it, stuff like that, kind of moist uh, towel or something, but it, it's still kind of lingering there, I, I think I exacerbate it by scratching it a little
0: too. So, well, you you probably are making it worse for yourself by scratching, but it can be awfully hard yeah. to resist scratching. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. So here's here's my thought for you, John. First of all, uh, and for those of you who didn't hear because you were your connection's not great, it was hair coloring, oh, yeah. ha- hair dye, that caused the scalp yeah. irritation. And so the first uh, thing that I would suggest you do is you might be able to get this by prescription uh, or you might be able to make it yourself. So I'm going to, if there is a hydrocortisone lotion that your doctor will probably prescribe for you, it's basically got the anti-inflammatory hydrocortisone in it. And you can put that on your scalp. They also make an alcohol-based one. It would probably penetrate a little bit better. I don't know how long your hair is, but you could massage it in and uh wrap your hair and your scalp in some saran wrap and let that oh. s- sort of bake for a few for a couple of hours and you should oh. you should be sweaty under there and that that opens up the pores it allows the hydrocortisone to penetrate. You don't oh. want to use like super strong hydrocortisone, you want to use the over the counter strength or the 2% which is what the lotion that I typically would prescribe for something like this is, but that occlusion, Oh yeah, right? But this is called occlusion. When you, when you put it, or when you put Saran wrap, I also have people do this for poison Oak. If you do it too long or you use too long, too strong a steroid, you can thin the skin or even get discoloration. Oh. So don't do this oh. every day. Don't do it. You know, be, be, be yeah. prudent about it, but nevertheless, you know, it really can help. Now, you need oh. to go back to the hair salon or wherever you had this done, or the product that you used, and you want to get a list, a complete list of all of the ingredients. You were ha- you were saying, oh. well, maybe it was left on too long, but you may also have developed a sensitivity. The people develop these alert yeah. these allergies through exposure, and because these things are trying to you know change the pigment of your hair, they contain some very caustic things. Some of them actually contain formaldehyde. Which is used to embalm bodies. And so you can yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it will definitely mess with the barrier functioning of the skin and allow it to get deep enough that the allergy cells get get a whiff of it. And once those allergy cells get a whiff of something, if the moon is in the seventh house and your stress level is high and various other conditions genetically are in place, you can develop an allergy. And the first time you have a bad reaction, the second time you have a worse reaction. So you should patch test the product before using it again. And, you know, when things are different colors, they'll have different ingredients, the same company. So you need to get the exact product, get that list, and everything on that list is suspect. So if you see something on the product you're going to use next time, and I would give your skin... a you know grow out some roots be be kind of a little bit of a of a skunk boy for a while and let let your roots grow out give your skin and your barrier functioning a chance to recover and when you're no longer itching and the scalp looks not red and completely normal you can try again but do a patch test on the inside of your wrist with the product and put that on and put that on for the duration it's supposed to stay on your hair and then wash it off and look at it in the morning and if it's red, throw some cortisone on it. But you're allergic. <laughs> but I'm allergic.
1: Okay, okay, that's good. To
0: that works for just about anything. You think you might be allergic to that sort of home uh, that that home patch test trick.
1: Okay, you know where I'm really feeling a lot of it too is uh, on the neck.
0: Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's kind of. Yeah, that area. But
1: just wrap that in it, too, I
0: guess. The whole yeah, thing. you can you can just put a layer on the back of your neck. You don't have to wrap all the way around. Oh. Your, you don't have to choke yourself okay, or anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, that would end yeah. your suffering, but it might be overkill, so to speak.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like one of these uh, oh prescriptions they were going to give me one time, and the guy got real excited when he told me about it. And it turned out to be it would help my arthritis. But it might cause a heart attack. So I, I wouldn't have any uh, more arthritis. But
0: <laughs> Well, you sure you know, wouldn't. I would yes, I have students sometimes, and I remind them that high levels of professional enthusiasm are very off-putting to the average person, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <it's
1: laughs> to the average patient. Like, yeah, I don't you're... know if I want that one. I never got
0: it. <laughs> I think it sort of depends on what you're sick with, too. But um, as far as yeah, some of those that... arthritis drugs go, they, if you are seriously disabled, it's a Faustian bargain. Yes, I might have an increased risk of cancer, but I'm suffering so much that I'm not even functional. That's a good trade off. I'll yeah. take, I'll take that trade off. But if it's like, yeah, I could just take a bunch of Tylenol and not drink and get enough pain relief that I can, uh, work on the, work on the day and try some other things, you know, I have my own little arthritis. Uh, recipe that I give people, it's, which I'll just briefly tell you, it's high doses of fish oil, like a couple of grams a day, high doses oh. of curcumin, and which like a couple to like a thousand milligrams a day, uh, tart cherry oh. juice. And I have no idea why this is helpful, but it can be really helpful. So that combination for a lot of people, plus the occasional acetaminophen for flare-ups. And again, you got to be careful if you're a drinker because the acetaminophen does not play well with alcohol and can damage your liver, so you really don't want to combine those two. Uh, but okay. it can be a really nice little cocktail. And one other trick I learned recently at a cannabis conference was bud tea. So you don't smoke the pot. You take the bud and make tea with it and you release a a different kind of THC, which is a very strong anti-inflammatory. Oh, okay. So that was just a little tidbit for people with arthritis, but I I thought that was just intriguing that when you smoke it, you don't get the anti-inflammatory effect as much as when you drink it. But you don't get when high you drink, when you drink. Oh. You don't get high when you drink the tea because it. This version of THC doesn't cross into the brain, but it sure does cross into the joints.
1: Into the joint. Oh, that's very interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah, no, that's very good information. I appreciate that.
0: Well, you're welcome. All right, John. Have a great day, and I hope that you. I hope your joints do not creak and move freely.
1: Oh no, no, they uh, they haven't gotten too out of control yet.
0: Alrighty, Bye for now.
1: Hey, thank you
0: very much. Keep bye. listening. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, and let's go on to some more stories. I want to tell you about a drug that it's an interesting story. As you know, we have diabetes. It's a huge number of people in the country with diabetes. And we have a great many drugs, but the drugs aren't always tolerated. And about two or three, no, well, maybe five years ago, uh, a, a category, a new category of drugs for diabetes came out. They're called SGLT two inhibitors, and SGLT two stands for sodium glucose co transporter two. And this is a functional protein that is expressed in the renal tubule in the proximal renal tubule, close to where you're doing the filtering in the thing called, where your GFR, your glomerular filtration rate is happening, that area is responsible for the majority of the absorption, or rather I should say reabsorption of filtered glucose. So how does your kidney work anyway? Well, it's basically a filter, and you run the blood through it with back pressure, and the serum uh red blood cells can't get through the filter, white blood cells can't get through the filter, proteins aren't supposed to be getting through the filter, but glucose is a small enough molecule, and sodium and potassium do get through the filter. So those end up in the let's call it the pre urine, because it hasn't gone through it it hasn't gone through its sophisticated processing. And then that fluid runs through a very windy pathway of tubes and it's sort it's called the loop of Henley, and it's a a sharp hairpin curve. You know talk about doing a one eighty this is literally like one of those old fashioned hairpins that uh, you used to see, and as it goes through at each point, things are pulled out, so in the case of the proximal loop, you pull back in the glucose, and in the distal loop and the other part of the hairpin curve, you play around with making sure that the num- the amount of sodium and potassium in the blood is good. And that's where the kidney does its fine-tune adjusting. That's also one of the other things the kidney is doing is uh, affecting the pH, getting acid into getting rid of acid. So urine tends to be acidic. But if you're eating a high plant-based diet, your urine will tend to not to be acidic, and you'll have a lower risk of kidney stones. But if you eat too much acid, the kidney has to get rid of it, so it dumps it into the urine, increasing your risk of kidney stones, but at least protecting your blood from all the acid from the excess amino acids you're drinking. What this does is it interferes with that glucose and sodium reabsorption, and that causes a increase in glucose loss into the urine. Now, we d- used to diagnose, I-, I find it so ironic, we used to diagnose diabetes that way by looking for glucose in the urine. That's why it's called diabetes mellitus, which translates from the Latin into peeing a lot tastes sweet like honey. Yeah. I'm glad we have better diagnostic laboratory studies now. That's really, really a call to duty to drink people's urine to check for diabetes. Anyway, what it does is it drops the amount of glucose in the system, pees it right out, and off we go. It decreases the plasma volume, so it decreases blood pressure. And that's where this new thing comes in. We developed this for diabetes, but after we started giving it to diabetics, many of whom have heart failure or hypertension, we found that it worked really great for reducing heart failure. Giving it reduces the preload that uh, causes the blood, the heart to I have to push against it, and the afterload, the the part where the blood is, when the heart pumps, it has to pump the blood sort of uphill against the resistance of the vascular tree. And it actually changes the sympathetic nervous system, down-regulating it and reducing the adrenaline. We see a really substantial decrease in uh, cardiovascular deaths in people with Heart failure and with type two diabetes. So, but congestive heart failure gets better. So it's really kind of a fortuitous, serendipitous miracle. And drugs like this, Fararixa is one of them. Dapagliflozin is one such drug. And no matter how elderly and sick and frail the person is, it actually works. Even the most frail people have. A benefit from using this. It limits the worsening of heart failure and it's a substantial advance in medicine. It's just starting to really get traction. I'm seeing a lot of stuff from my academy trying to make sure that I know about it and anything I get I try to bring straight to you to make sure you know about it. Well that's about all for this week's podcast please go to askdrdawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at ask Dr. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy.
1: Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jeeva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.